the defining attribute of God is his steadfast covenantal love, his hased, demonstrated to us in the work of Christ on the cross. And the question is, do we love and desire him the way he loves and desires us? You're listening to a sermon series titled Song of Solomon, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Excited to be studying this text today. Um, just, I want to say real quick on that event, the Heart for the Nations. You can sign up on our website, on Facebook. Um, you can leave us a note. You can go on the Church Center app and look for Shoreline and register that way. But um, I've been on dozens and dozens of missions trips. My grandfather was a missionary in Honduras. Um, when we went to Minneapolis for the weekend, didn't have any expectations of having my world rocked and changed. But I got to tell you, my whole view of missions was rightly um, impacted. So I just personally want to encourage us to not miss this opportunity. We wanted a lot of our fellowship to go up to Minneapolis, and that's $500 to $1,000 per person. Here we get to do that for free and have Minneapolis, so to speak, brought to us. So really want to encourage you this Friday night to come out and uh, register uh, in those different avenues. So uh, Song of Solomon, we're going to look at chapter 1 starting in verse 2. But before we do, this is a sermon for singles. We are going to call this Five Rules of Attraction for the Single Christian. Uh, but we really could zoom out from just the singles uh, because you guys came early, right? You guys got here early and you're married, so I don't want you to feel you're missing out. This can apply to all of us no matter where we're at, singled, married, or not. Uh, but we do want to start today with the singles. So before we dive into our text, singles, this, if it hasn't happened already, it will happen eventually. You'll be at Starbucks, or you'll be at the mall, or you'll be maybe jogging at Benderson, maybe you're working out, uh, or worse, you're at one of those singles ministries at a church, right? The single mingle, right? Those are, those are the, the worst. Um, and so um, what do you say to someone that you look across the room or across the, um, the workout place or across the the river, uh, and you notice them, and you find them attractive, what do you do? Is there a biblical protocol for this scenario? And I'm here to tell you, yes, there is. There is a thing that you're, you're, you're um, I want to give you today that you can, um, you can say or you can do from our text, but I also, um, in light of that, want to give you a warning. There are some things not to say. There are some epic fails that I want to just save you from, okay? And so, um, these are, I want to give you a list of things you should never say. I, I care about you. I don't want you confused. And so here's a list of things to never say to someone that you're attracted to. We call these hashtag Christian pickup lines. Yeah, these are bad. Here we go. Let's put the first one up there. All right, this would be one you don't want to say. So last night I was reading in the book of Numbers, and then I realized I don't have yours. Okay, no. All right. These are supposed to be cringy. All right, these are bad. There's, of course, this one. You and me, we're like loaves and fishes. We just might be a miracle. <laughs> wow. Someone's like, actually, that one's not bad. This one, hi, my name is Will. God's will. I'm God's will for you. Ooh. <laughs> it took a minute, right? All right, how about this one? 
If I march around you seven times, will you fall for me? <laughs> so bad. All right, I think this is my absolute favorite one, though. This is my favorite, uh, this next one. Uh, you are perfect, except for all the sin. <laughs> You're just perfect, except for the sin. Uh, and then, of course, this one is the cringiest of all, I think. Uh, is your name Faith? Because you're the substance of things that I've hoped for. Oh. John, that worked on Karen, right? That was the one, right? So all seriousness aside, um, what do you say to someone you're attracted to? How do we do this kind of dance, this attraction dance as a Christian? What do we do in these scenarios? And so in our text this morning, we're going to look at attraction and singleness, but this also is going to apply to us in how we interact with our spouse, okay? So we're going to pick it up in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. And if you weren't here last week, we're studying the Song of Solomon uh, for the next two months. And we're going to see today King Solomon, the king who's pursuing a beautiful country girl named Shulamith. And today we're going to see the beauty and the purity of their relationship before they got married and how God was at work even after their marriage to build a continued romantic attraction and appreciation for one another. Okay, so this is for all of us, but specifically, this sermon does speak to the single Christian, but for all of us, we can learn. So let's look at verse 2, and what you're going to see in your headings, you'll see she, and then others, and then he. And that is meant by design. So we're going to see her statement, and then we're going to hear from a crowd of friends, crowd of witnesses, and then we're going to hear from him. And then we'll get some back and forth. So starting in verse 2, this is her. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. All right, so a few things that we notice right out of the, right out of the gate is, first of all, Shulamith gets right to it. The book opens right after verse 1 explaining what the book is in immediate action. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is a, a, par a powerful way to begin a narrative. This is a thing that movie producers and book writers use called in media res. The idea is they kick it off right in the middle of the action. You're watching the Bond movie and it opens with this chase scene or this explosion and you're right in the thick of the action. And then you kind of get to a moment of resolve, and then it kind of goes back and tells you what just happened leading up to that point. And that's really what's happening here. Uh, in this song, we don't begin with an intro. We begin deep in the chorus, and Shulamith is expressing her desire for a kiss. Notice, she's not seeking the kiss of honor for a king, like going up and kissing his ring. Uh, no, not, uh, not only that, but this is not the kiss of a family member, like when you kiss Aunt Betsy. This is a romantic kiss. This is a kiss that begins when the priest or pastor or rabbi says, you may kiss your bride. This is that initial kiss that turns into private kisses later that night and throughout the marriage bed. She wants to be kissed. But notice why. Notice why. She says in verse 2 and 3, because your love, his love, is better than wine. She is saying here that being around him, being around this man, is intoxicating and it's pleasurable. Now, when we hear about wine in the Bible, it's almost always, almost always, a picture of fullness and a picture of delight. And I did a kind of a quick Facebook um, video last year 
or the year before even, on, on wine. Some, some prohibitions and some surprises in the Bible. One thing that surprised me is the Bible almost always uses wine in a positive sense. The absence of wine is a negative thing, except when it's God's wrath that he's describing. And when it's God's goblet, then it is a bad thing. It is wrath. And, and so um, that's not a good thing. You don't want to drink from God's wine goblet. And so Shulamith says, my man is intoxicating. He, his love is like wine. And then she says in verse 3 that his anointing oils are fragrant. So he's a smart single man. He's wearing cologne. That's a good thing. That's smart. And then she um, notices that his name is like refreshing oil. It, it, it is something that brings like an anointing, uh, a blessing. If you were to take um, this oil and you were to pour it out on someone uh, who had been out in the Middle Eastern sun. This would have brought refreshment. It would have brought cleansing. And so his presence, even his name, his reputation, his character, is something that is refreshing. And so the Hebrews would encapsulate all of who you were in your name. And she says, when I hear his name, it to me is refreshing. So in a word, she's attracted to him. She's attracted to him. Now look at verse 4. We have the bridal party chiming in. You should have a heading that says others. It says, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. All right, so this is kind of a chorus of friends. If we were to act this out on a play, the spotlight would hit her over here, and then we'd have the lights come up on a little hidden chorus of people over here, and they would be agreeing with her. So Shulamith, the, the girl, has friends that are, are affirming this guy. So She's not going out with someone that her family and friends disagree with. She has her godly counsel of friends, and she listens to them and is willing to follow their lead. Now, even though she's strongly attracted to him, she realizes in a moment that she's out of her league, that this guy is way out of her league. And so there's some things she begins to kind of flesh out in her song that are insecurities to her. Notice verse 5. We get back to she. She says, I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions. So if you track with me, what is the thing that she's a little bit insecure about? It's about her skin color. She says, I'm dark, but I'm lovely. So apparently in Hebrew culture, there were certain qualities that were considered beautiful or even sexy. Uh, we know during the Renaissance, this is kind of different than our current culture, but during the Renaissance, plump women were considered attractive. And today we're fed kind of this airbrushed lie in a size four. We're told to be attractive, you have to be skinny. Now, whatever our version of beautiful is, in Shulamith's day, the lighter or mid-tone skin was what was attractive. And so to have darker skin meant you were out in the fields, you were one who worked all day, and you weren't paying attention to your appearance. So for her, what became work for her became now a liability. She felt like, well, now I'm not as beautiful as I could be. But she mentions, I'm dark, but I'm lovely. I may be dark, but I'm lovely. Now, remember I told you last week, there's going to be parts of Song of Solomon that are overly emphasized with allegory. So some commentators will take every little phrase 
and they'll make some kind of strange connection to Christ. Well, someone does that here. Notice what one commentator says. I think it's a little silly. They said the reference to her being dark means the church is ugly with sin. But when she says she's lovely, she's referring to her spiritual beauty after conversion. I, I, I don't understand that at all. Um, but notice the, here that she has great qualities, except physically she feels like I have this one blemish. There's this one thing that I look at in the mirror and I'm insecure about. And this was her insecurity as a woman. This is a vulnerability that she had. And she takes the moment to acknowledge it to her love interest. She doesn't hide it, which she can't. She doesn't veil herself, right? She presents her insecurity to her potential love interest. Now, let's see what Solomon says to answer her. Notice verse 8, you should have now he. He says in verse 8, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. Now remember in verse 7, she said, Hey, where do you pasture your flock? And so he invites her to come and see. But he immediately, did you catch that? He immediately addresses her insecurity. And he doesn't just say, Hey, you're beautiful. He doesn't just say, you're most beautiful. He says, oh, most beautiful among women. He says, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. It even gets better. Verse 9, he says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Okay, so I don't know if you had the same reaction that I just had, but up until this point, I thought he was doing pretty good. But then we come to the huge record scratch. He just compared her to a horse. I don't know if you caught that. You're like, well, what about her resembles a horse, Solomon? What particular thing? Well, her teeth, they're like horse's teeth. No, no, I didn't mean that. I mean, her hair, she has coarse horse hair. No, I mean, you, when you run, you gallop like a stallion. You know, ouch. <laughs> These are bad things. Maybe he should have kept his mouth shut. Men, do you feel like that? Your wife is like, just tell me something romantic. How do I look in this dress? <laughs> And you're like, I need to run. I've got nothing. I got nothing right here. Um, so she's not saying, whisper something romantic to me. She's expressing her disappointment in her appearance. And she's, she's sharing something that she's insecure about uh, and afraid that he's not going to find her attractive. And this is a huge moment for him to redeem. This is a big moment for him. He could really damage her heart here. And, and though I'm poking fun at the horse reference, Read it again, verse 9. He says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Oh, wait, this is an Egyptian mare. Randy, you put it up there. Let's look at it again. So these horses were incredibly beautiful. Uh, these, of all horses, were incredibly temperate. And they were so valuable, the Egyptian mare was so valuable to the Bedouin people that when raiders came to attack you, you as a man of your family would hide your children and your horse in the tent. So of all of your assets, your children and your horse, this was the most important thing to uh, these people. A beautiful beast with a wonderful disposition, able to live out in the heat and still look breathtaking doing it. And so that's what Solomon says. He says, listen, you're worried about your dark complexion. Actually, let me tell you what you remind me of, the most beautiful thing that I can imagine, the most valuable thing to us as people. I don't think he could have picked a more fitting, beautiful metaphor to encourage her in her beauty. Well, if you missed it, he said after that, your cheeks are lovely, and hey, your neck, your neck looks great. 
Uh, and so he's impressed with her jewelry, but he mentions that he has something to give her. He has silver and gold jewelry. In other words, he's not just going straight for what many men go to, and they say, hey, I really like certain aspects of you. He says, no, I'm going to stay classy, and, and I'm going to tell you how beautiful you look in what you're wearing. He compliments her. But then he mentions he's going to take something about her, her jewelry, he's going to make it better. So he's, he's not rushing to take the jewelry off, right? He's taking his time, he's slowing it down, he's appreciating her. And then we have the friends in verse 11, look at it. The others pipe in and they say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. Again, these are outside advisors or mentors who are active and they're involved in this relationship. So these are not two people just alone in a tent giving each other compliments with no one watching while they haven't consummated their marriage with um, vows before God and before witnesses. Uh, these are the kind of romantic, attractive gestures of two people who are uh, looking forward to marriage. Now, in verse 12, we get a little bit of a back and forth. So remember, this is a song. So this was meant to be sung by Israel. I could picture maybe Blake Shelton taking the stage with his wife, and they're doing a little duet right here. So first we hear from Shulamith, and then we hear from him. And we get a little bit of, of a back and forth throughout the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Notice verse 12. We hear from her first. She says this, While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. So she likes his cologne, and her perfume is now doing its attractive work. And she's thinking about how she feels when with him. When I'm with him, this is what he means to me. And it's kind of like her way of saying, I wonder what my, my name sounds like with his last name. She's kind, of, she's kind of imagining what would it be like to be married to him. Uh, and so now he answers, verse 15. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Notice that he reaffirms twice how beautiful she is. He notices her eyes. Uh, this was a noted Bedouin feature. Um, he hasn't gotten graphic. He hasn't gotten erotic. He's a gentleman. Uh, and he's just continuing to affirm that she's beautiful. He's setting her apart now as my love. Uh, and he's noticing different aspects of um, her appearance. Now, she responds almost, uh, almost identically. Uh, look at verse 16. She says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. So one person kind of said, hey, she's giving him the signal. right? She's got that twinkle in her eye. She's kind of moving her eyebrows up and down. Um, she's taking every compliment that he's giving on her appearance and she's translating that into desire. And, and I think this is a great moment for them. She, uh, he's expressing how beautiful she is. She says, you're beautiful as well. You're desirable. You're delightful. And then she's kind of pointing like, our couch is green. right? She's kind of pointing out like, hey, just so you know, I'm, I'm attracted to you. And I'd like this to go further. Okay. <clears throat> Told you guys we have kids ministry for weeks like this. So uh, they now are uh, moving towards the couch. So you're thinking, right, as you read this, like, what's going to happen next? Um, do I need to put my hand over the ears of my teenager here today? Well, look how he responds, verse 17. 
Uh, there's some confusion over whether he responds here or she responds um, in verse 17. I believe it's him. Okay, so notice what happens. Um, he says, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. Okay, so I believe she's like, hey, you're beautiful as well. Our couch is green. And so he looks over at the couch. He's like, yeah, the couch is green. Hey, you know what? Man, I've been meaning to do some work on the cedars. Man, our so he gets completely distracted and looks at the house construction and forgets he's with his girl. I don't know, men, are we seeing a pattern here? Um, we'll, we'll dive into this in a few weeks when we talk about marital intimacy. Um, but I like to say that marital intimacy begins in the kitchen, not in the bedroom. What I mean by that is if you want to build excitement in the bedroom, it doesn't happen when the lights are off and the doors are closed. It happens during the day as you're living life together, as you're in, uh, in fellowship with one another, when you're giving compliments, you're sharing kindness, you're doing acts of service and non-sexual appreciation. That's where it begins. Uh, then the rest of the intimacy goes from there. Uh, but instead of focusing on her <laughs> and being romantic, he starts pointing out the construction of the house. He's like, yeah, this is good cedar. This is a solid construction. The, uh, the rafters are pine. Yeah, I made that. I, I built this, right? And she's like, come on, honey. And so notice what happens next. Chapter 2, ignoring the chapter distinctions, she begins to be insecure again. Look at verse 1. She says, I'm a rose of Sharon. I'm a lily of the valleys. So you could translate it this way. I I'm just a flower. In fact, I'm a lily. I'm, I'm nothing special. I'm just a lily of the valley. Nobody important. Well, he answers in verse 2, As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young woman. She's kind of saying, you know, let me just point out again, I'm ordinary. And he says, you think you're ordinary, and the qualities that you have, you think those things make you plain, but I think that those are what make you stand out. Again, he's given her affirmation where she had apprehension. Husbands, this is one of the best things that we can give our wives. Single men, this is a pro tip for you. Okay, Where our significant other struggles with anxiety, struggles with insecurities, we can take extra time to present with grace and truth and encouragement. We can say, hey, I know you're insecure about this seeming blemish, but I think that's what makes you distinct. I think that's what makes you beautiful. That's what makes me attracted to you. And so we have to do um, our part in slowing down and giving those affirmation and those words of encouragement. So she kind of mirrors her response to his right here in verse three. Uh, he said, listen, you're different than all other women. And now she says, well, you're different than other young men. Verse 3, she says, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Okay, so she delights in him. She desires him, and she's inviting him to lead her, right? To strengthen her, to refresh her. She wants him to cover her. And so um, we're not going to cover verses 4 through 6 today, but we'll just read through them quickly. Um, these are a description. Most scholars believe that verses uh, 4 through 6 are a graphic description of their lovemaking. So we're going to kind of skip through this. Uh, but he says in um, it says, she says in verse 4, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. 
All right, so um, again, this section is now when they've enjoyed marriage, he takes her away to the banqueting house. They've had their feast, they've had their marriage, and then they uh, begin to consummate their marriage, committed to one another in the covenant of marriage. Um, so for that reason, she says in verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, I told you we're going to observe the text, do things a little bit differently. We're going to observe the text, interpret and apply, and then find Christ in the text. So if we were to interpret this, I think that the interpretation is pretty straightforward. These are two lovers who are communicating their desire and their interest in one another and the dynamics of that communication. Remember, Shulamith is a single woman, uh, and Solomon, at this point, at least written from this perspective, is a single man. Uh, now, I want to be clear on this point. It's not easy to be a Christian single today. It's not easy. It's challenging. But I, I want to make sure, I said it a little bit last week, I want to make sure that this is really clear for those of you who are single. Um, I, I want to put this quote up on the screen. Singleness is not a sickness that marriage is the cure of. Okay? Singleness is not a sickness and marriage is not the cure. Uh, scripture actually says much about being single. Many of the prophets of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, uh, each of the Marys in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul, these were all most likely single. Above all of them, Jesus was single. Jesus was and still is a virgin. Okay? And so Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's better not to marry in some contexts. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. In fact, he says later in that same chapter, um, speaking to the Corinthians, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. You might say he is. Well, he gets more specific. How he can please his wife. And so his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be uh, devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, more specifically, how she can please her husband. And then he says this, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So for some, uh, you may be more effective in the kingdom by being single. For others, you may be more effective in the kingdom by being married. The question is, has God called you to be single for the rest of your life? Is this what, what um, God has prepared for you? You're like, you know, I'm not getting any younger here. Is this what God has called me to do? I don't know. And I think there's one important question to consider. If you're wondering, and I don't want to overthink calling, but I do want to uh, consider this question. The question is, as a single person, do you feel tempted? Do you feel incomplete? If so... If you're like, man, I'm constantly tempted and there's just this sense that I'm incomplete at the moment. And that may be an indication that maybe you're just single for a season uh, instead of celibate for your entire life and married to Christ. But listen, being single or being married is not a higher plane of spirituality. Paul isn't saying that. He's saying it just means your interests may be divided if you're married. Now you've got to focus on your family, whereas you're single, you're focused on the Lord. 
It's not a higher plane of spirituality. In fact, there's some singles that are able to really seek Jesus in awesome ways. And there's married couples who really understand agape because they didn't get it before marriage. Now they get what it's like to lay down your life and serve uh, another sinner. And so um, I think ultimately uh, that's what this text is describing, these two singles that are coming together in marriage. But um, how can we apply this text? I think from this text we can talk about attraction. And what I want to do is look at five rules of attraction for specifically the single Christian. All right, so jot these down uh, if you would. And if you're married, you can share these with someone you know. The five rules of attraction. Uh, And again, these are maybe more like guidelines. All right, so number one uh, is male initiation. She says in chapter one, verse two, go back and look at it with me. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is not a brazen woman bent on pursuing a man with illicit advances. She doesn't say, come over here, I'm going to kiss you. No, she says, let him come. Let him kiss me. She understands her role is to respond. His role is to initiate and pursue. But she wants to be pursued. She even asks him in verse 4, draw me after you. I want you to chase me. I want you to pursue me. And then notice in chapter 2, verse 4, she says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. In other words, he's covering me. He's leading me. He's surrounding me. He's sustaining me. He's chasing after me. He, he wants to be intimate with her, so he initiates that with her. And so the first rule of attraction is male initiation. Now, today that notion is completely considered sexist and old-fashioned, right? Our culture would hear this sermon and say, that is ridiculous. That pastor is absolutely a chauvinistic sexist. Um, Did you guys know that today women proposing to men is beginning to trend? It's beginning to trend. In fact, a 2018 report from Pinterest found that the number of people searching for women proposing to men ideas has skyrocketed 336% from 2017. Uh, one professional matchmaker, whatever that is, is that a, is that a thing? Uh, Michelle Frankel, she says this, the trend is about gender equality. She says, if a woman wants something, she goes after it in the workplace. So if she wants to live her life with a man, why wouldn't she choose to be the one to propose? Now, before someone comes up and accuses me of sexism, I didn't say the woman shouldn't show any initiative. Let me remind you, I didn't say initiative, I said initiation. The pattern we see in the scriptures of Christ and his church, male and female, is that he's the initiator and that his bride, the church, is the responder. So in the relationship, uh, when you're single, it should be the man pursuing, chasing after the woman. In the marriage intimacy, it should be the man who's chasing and pursuing the woman who ultimately responds. That's the first rule. Look at rule number two. Rule number two is mutual interest. Chapter 1, verse 15, Solomon calls Shulamith beautiful. And then the very next verse, she responds back to him with the same phrase. So they're both deeply and mutually interested in one another. I think we can all agree it is hard to proceed with a relationship when you're the only one who's genuinely attracted to the other person. All right? Uh, This is where the concept of arranged marriages is troubling to me. Because there should never be a covenant relationship that's pursued under obligation. Now, I do believe that God can open a person's heart 
and open a person's desire for someone whom they may not find physically attractive. I've seen God do this, so it's not beyond him. The question is, what are you interested in? In Solomon's case, it's her eyes, it's her cheeks, it's her neck. Um, and, and in her case, it's his integrity. That's pretty standard. The man is attracted to the physical, and the woman is typically attracted to the emotional. But the key is that there's mutual interest. There's a mutual interest. Thirdly, there's meaningful impression. In other words, what impresses both Shulamith and Solomon is how they stand out from the crowd. He says, you're a lily among thorns, and she says, you're an apple tree among all the other trees in the forest. There was something that stood out to them that attracted them. There's always something that will attract you to another person. Hopefully, it's their character, it's their personality, their humor, not the car they drive, not the neighborhood they live in, not their bank account. Uh, attraction is simply the qualities that draw us closer to a person. I thought this was crazy. I almost asked my wife, Jen, to screen this next idea. But um, apparently, on a particular website, there are 10 things on which women judge men the most. And I thought this was fascinating. So typically, women will judge men by their teeth, 71%, by their grammar, 69%, by their clothing, uh, 58%, by their hair, 53%, their nail or hands, 52%, whether he does or does not have a tattoo, 34%, his shoes, 29%, the car that he drives, 24%, his accent, really? 22%, and then the electronic devices that he carries, 10%. Wow. Now, I'm not sure who did this survey, but clearly they weren't good at math. That adds up to 422%. <laughs> Obviously, the ladies were able to answer more than once. Uh, but listen, for the Christian, that list should be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, right? That should be the qualities that we're looking for. We don't look for a man who looks good, but who looks Christ-like. So if you're married, what, I want to ask you this to the married couples. What are the qualities that stood out about your wife, that stood out about your husband when you first met them, when you first came to know them? What made a meaningful impression on you about them? I would encourage you to share that with them this week. What was something that made an impact on you? Meaningful impression. Well, number four, uh, rules for attraction. We have mentor involvement. Notice Shulamith and Solomon, they're not running off privately to have sex before marriage. They aren't isolated. They're not alone. They're not having anyone else that doesn't offer feedback or insight. No, their friends are deeply involved. And I believe family and friends and mentors were within close proximity to sprinkle their thoughts into the conversation. Verse 4 of chapter 1, her friends interrupt her and they say, hey, we support you. In chapter 1, verse 11, when Solomon talks about the jewelry, someone nearby chimes in and says, hey, I could add value to that. I have jewelry that I can give you guys in your relationship. So whenever our family, friends, or trusted advisors are warning us about a relationship that we're in, and people who we love and ask for their input, when they're uneasy, when they're concerned, we need to listen to them because we can easily become blinded. This happens often. I've seen it happen. Manipulative men, especially men, love to swoop in and remove a woman from her family and from her friends. And sadly, I've seen that happen. She just gets captivated by this knight in shining armor, and she doesn't heed pastoral or principled counsel. But as single Christians, there's safety and wisdom in involving trusted mentors in our lives and to seek their perspective. So I encourage you to do that. But finally, number five, in 
attraction, there is measured inhibition. In verse 7 of chapter 2, Shulamith says, Be careful, be cautious that you don't awaken love until it so desires. So within relationships, there should always be clearly defined lines that are never crossed. I just want to say this so it's on record. The Christian does not engage in any sort of premarital sexual immorality. Someone said, well, what about other types of sex? I said, that's got the word sex in it, right? So we should practice joyful abstinence. More than that, the Christian single practices joyful attentiveness. So we do, what does that mean? It means we don't let our hearts become blinded by lust or infatuation. Because love, according to this, can be intoxicating like wine. So we have to embrace a measured inhibition in our relationships. And let me add one more thing on this note. For the single Christian, I want you to be careful that you're not tempted to try to attract others. Does that make sense? So you wear a certain kind of clothing or a certain kind of makeup or you try to be extra flirty. And I would say attract but don't distract. In other words, you already are attractive. It says in the scriptures that, that we are in aroma. We're, in a, we're an attractive fragrance that draws people uh, to Christ. So that should cause us to already be attractive. People see us and they go, oh man, there's something about that person. We should say it's Christ, not me trying to have you lust after me. Now, where is Christ in this text? Remember, this book isn't only about Jesus and his church, but if Jesus were to show us where he is in this text, I would be inclined to to see him in Shulamith's joyful announcement where he said, uh, where she said, his banner over me is love. I love that. He's not ashamed to raise a banner and say, I am solely devoted to this woman for the rest of my days. I see a picture of Christ in that, that Jesus is not ashamed to proclaim to the world his undying love for his bride. The defining attribute of God is his steadfast covenantal love, his hased, demonstrated to us in the work of Christ on the cross. And the question is, do we love and desire him the way he loves and desires us? Today we're going to take communion, and, and it's such a joy to do that together with our church family every month to prepare our hearts and remember what Christ has done for us um, at Calvary. Uh, and so in a moment we're going to do that. And, and today we've talked about attraction and what draws men and women toward one another. And I wonder what that looks like in our pursuit of God. John Piper begins his book, When I Don't Desire God, with this thought. He said, I hope you'll not be offended if I open this book by praying for you. And there's a reason. When all is said and done, only God can create joy in God. In other words, we can't conjure this up and manufacture this kind of faux veneer of desire. Like, yeah, I'm really zealous for God. Only God can stir up desire for him. So the question is, do you desire him today? The scripture is filled with language about desiring after, longing after, needing God. Scripture like, the Psalms that say, as the deer pants after water, so my soul longs after you. That he's a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. We're told in the Old Testament to seek me and live. That earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and flesh may fail, but God is my strength. He's my reward. He's my portion forever. Jesus even said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're seeking it. They're desiring it for they shall be filled. You see, our God, our great God, has qualities that are attractive. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He's rich in mercy. 
He's full of grace. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. He's all-forgiving. He has light and truth and hope and peace, and all of those things are found in him alone. Today, Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the A to Z. He's the e from the east to the west. He's the intro and the credits. He's our righteousness, our redemption, our hope, our shield, and he is our sure reward. And so because of the cross, when Jesus exchanged the glory of our great God for our sin, he looks at us, his bride, and he sees us complete in him. And so when we look at this text and we go, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine, that is ultimately realized in our relationship with Christ, that his love really is better than wine and his banner over me is love. And so the question today is, am I desiring more of Jesus? In a moment, we're gonna um, worship together. I wanna invite the worship team up and we're gonna um, close in a song about what Christ has done for us. We're gonna have our ushers come and, and distribute the elements. Just hang on to those. We're gonna sing the song and then we are going to be led in a time of communion. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ here today, we want you to abstain from receiving the elements. This is something we do as the uh, participation in a covenant community, the body of Christ. So I wanna encourage you, if you're not a Christian, if you are, as we sing the song, let's reflect on the love of God that pursues sinners like you and I. And then I'll lead us in communion when we're finished singing. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we are drawn to you. We are drawn to you as someone who is excellent, who's worthy of adoration, who's worthy of praise. And we thank you that, Lord, when we flip the script, we look at our lives. What about us would you desire? Lord, we are, you're mindful that we're dust, and yet you love us and pursue us as sinners. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your covenantal grace. And we pray, Lord, that today as we worship you, as we consider the cross, we would be reminded of how great you are. We love you. We worship you. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.